Well, good evening to another Wednesday night Bible study, and we are just marching through the book of Isaiah. We are up to chapter 54. Let's open with a word of prayer and get into the text. Our Heavenly Father, we pause before beginning our study because we want to acknowledge you, Father, and we want to thank you. There is just so much confusion in this world, and, and it, it's a world that's getting darker and darker. It's spinning faster and faster out of control. And yet we can be anchored with your sure word. And we just thank you, Father, for the incredible privilege that we have to access the ancient prophets, to access the word of the very God of the, of the universe, the God of Israel. We praise you, Father. We thank you for this. We pray, God, that you'll continue to bless us as we hunger and thirst for your righteousness and that you'll bless us this evening as we study your word together. We ask this, Lord. In Jesus Christ's most holy name, amen. So as I mentioned, we're up to Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, last week, we were looking at Isaiah chapter 53, a very pivotal chapter uh, that really outlines the, the role of the suffering servant and, and how the suffering servant makes the reconciliation of Israel with God possible. And, and through that, the reconciliation of the world with God possible. So we'll continue with Isaiah chapter 54, and I believe it was in uh, chapter 52 that uh, I went back to the book of Lamentations to, 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 as an introduction, as an on-ramp into Isaiah. And I want to do that again for this chapter, uh, because Jeremiah, having lived through the, the, uh, the antitype of what Isaiah was ultimately prophesying, he then personified the suffering of Jerusalem and the suffering of his people in Lamentations. And so that's just a foreshadowing of the suffering that is going to come upon God's chosen people in the end time. So here in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1, he writes, How does the city sit solitary? You get a sense of confusion. It's like, how could this happen? This glorious city that seemed untouchable, that had, had God's blessing and mercy. Well, we just have to go back to Deuteronomy. We just have to go back to the covenant and said, yes, you will be blessed if you obey God. But in disobeying God, these are the curses that will come upon you. And, and this most certainly, and, and that's the thing about God, he's not random. He's not arbitrary. He's very precise. He's very specific. And he's very uh, true to his word. And so we just have to go to the covenant and see what was promised, what was agreed to. And then we know that God is going to carry out his word faithfully. So how does the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces. How has she become a slave? The Lord was as an enemy. This is why. This is what happened. It, it was they became an enemy of God. So the Lord now is against them. This is the answer. The Lord was as an enemy. He has, he has swallowed up Israel. It, it might look like the Babylonians came in and swallowed up Israel. But God is saying, and, and the Assyrians who swallowed up the northern tribes. God is saying, I did it. I did it. The Lord was as an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel according to the covenant. He has swallowed up all her palaces. This was a glorious nation. He has destroyed his strongholds and has increased in the daughter of Judah 
mourning, and lamentation. God has done this. Now, we just fast forward to chapter 3. Even though God set himself up as an enemy to Jerusalem and as an enemy to his people Israel, listen to what the prophet writes. Lamentations 3.21 This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And that's what we see in Malachi. People are very familiar with the passage in Malachi where it says, you know, I'm the Lord, I change not. And people use that as some sort of Greek philosophical platform to say that God is fixed. But that's not what God is saying in Malachi. I believe it's chapter 3. When he says, I am the Lord, I change not, he explains what he means. He says, therefore, you sons of Jacob are not destroyed. So when God makes a covenant, when God makes a promise, he doesn't look for something better. He, he doesn't uh, negate uh, uh, his promises or renege on his promises. And so because God made a promise to Abraham that is eternal, this is why the sons of Jacob are not destroyed. And this is why his mercy endures forever. And so Jeremiah, in looking at this devastation, and looking at the catastrophe, the calamity, he still has hope. And he says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not destroyed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And that's such a beautiful hymn. I think many of us are familiar with it, how great God's faithfulness is. But many of us just take it personally. God is faithful to me. But what we really need to understand about this is God is faithful to his word. And his faithfulness is great to his word. He magnifies his word even above his own name. And so because of this, Jeremiah is confident that they will not be destroyed. God's mercy is new every morning, so there's a new start. Even though it's devastation and and plunder today, we can look forward tomorrow to tomorrow. And that really is, you know, it's like uh, from the very creation, when God created the the, the night and the day, the night comes first, and, and it plunges into deep darkness, and then the light comes. And that really sets down the pattern for how God works, that with man, that mankind is going to plunge himself into deep darkness. Israel specifically going to plunge themselves into deep darkness, but then light will appear. And so they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. This is a truth that Jeremiah understood. Therefore will I hope in him. And so that pattern that's laid down in Lamentations, it's actually laid down through all the prophets. Uh, It's actually, I just mentioned, it's laid down from the very beginning of creation. This pattern of going into deep darkness and then light emerging and eliminating the darkness, this is the pattern that we see in Isaiah. And so Isaiah, really, you know, first Isaiah, is uh, laying down the plunge into deep darkness. And then second Isaiah is the emergence of light through the, as a result of the work of the suffering servant. And so this is what we're going to see this pattern now as we come into Isaiah 54. And Isaiah just has this way of, of just constantly coming back to this and, and emphasizing it so that we don't miss it. So he says here in Isaiah 54 and verse 1, he says, 
Sing, O barren, that did not bear. So, you know, and again, back in the day, to not have children was a great burden for women. Today, it's, it's the thing not to have children. Uh, you know, it's uh, just modern Western man uh, just doesn't care, cares about career, not about children. But back in the day, it was all about having children and having big families. And But some women were not blessed that way. And so they were really burdened. And we can think of Hannah uh, when we can read in, in Samuel how, she, how burdened she was not to have children. Uh, certainly we can think of Sarah. But here, um, God is telling them to break forth into singing and cry aloud. So there's a, a, a turning of events. Break forth into singing and cry aloud that you did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate. <clears throat> so he says here, more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. So somehow the woman that was desolate, that was barren, that had no children, the married wife, she was having lots of children, but yet there's been this turn of events, turn, turn of fortune, where the woman that had no children now has more children, the woman that was desolate now has more children than the married wife. And so God is telling the desolate one to rejoice. And, and what we're going to see here is the desolate one is Israel. It's, it's Israel and Judah in the end time, they've been completely ravished and, and wiped out, and there's nothing left. And yet God is telling this remnant, rejoice, because you're going to have more children than the married woman, which was ancient Israel, that was married to God. And here we'll see in Isaiah 49, we actually read this when we were back in chapter 49. He says, Then shall you say in your heart, Who has begotten me these? seeing I have lost my children. So, so there's this devastation that's going to come in the end time upon the head of Israel, upon the head of Judah, great devastation, and yet God says that's going to be reversed. And they're going to have tremendous blessings. And they're going to have lots of children. And, and there's this sense of confusion now, in the same way that uh, Jeremiah was confused as the how did the city become desolate? Now there's this confusion as how did the desolate city become so prosperous. Then shall you say in your heart, who has begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children, and I'm desolate, a captive, I'm a slave, and removing to and fro, and they're just taking me around wherever they want. And who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. These, where had they been? So all of a sudden, all these children are appearing for Judah and for Israel, and there's this, where did these people come from? Now, all of this, because God is faithful to his word, all of this is fulfilling the ancient prophecy to Abraham, where in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, God says that in blessing, I will bless you. And in multiplying, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand, which is upon the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. This is what God is going to fulfill. So we walk by faith, not by sight. And no matter what it looks like, and there's this growing anti-Semitism all around the world, something that we thought we would never see again after the Holocaust. That, oh, never again, never again, never again. And yet it's happening again. And yet the promise is 
that the seed of Abraham, the covenant seed of Abraham, will possess the gate of his enemies. So the enemies are going to surround and destroy, and then God is going to act and reverse it. And Israel and Judah will possess their enemies. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, does something really fascinating with this verse, Isaiah 54.1, where the desolate woman has more children and is, is to rejoice over the married woman that had lots of children. But now the desolate woman has more children than the married woman. Look what Paul does with this. It's very fascinating. And a lot of people, because they divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament, they make things up. They make up meanings that Paul never intended. But Paul is actually commenting on Isaiah 54, verse 1. And so when we realize that the Bible has to reconcile, reconcile the scripture cannot be broken, that we can use Paul to understand what's going on in Isaiah, but we can also use Isaiah to actually understand what Paul is saying. So look what he does in Galatians chapter 4. He says here, in Galatians chapter 4, <clears throat> Tell me, beginning in verse 21, Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And so the traditional Christian, they're going to use this passage to say, law's done away, we don't need the law. And yet that's not what Paul is saying. So let's read this in the context or through the lens of Isaiah, that Paul is not going to contradict Isaiah. He, he is just using what Isaiah says to bring out this meaning much more clearly. And I think what's important, I think where people get off track is they believe that God has a relationship with Gentiles. That God is unfaithful. That he's married to Israel, but on the side, he has an intimate relationship with Gentiles. God forbid. We, we have to just expunge that concept out of our mind. God has zero, nothing, nothing to do with Gentiles. There is no relationship that God has with Gentiles. He has a relationship, an intimate relationship with Israel. He says through Amos, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known. And that word known implies intimately known. Nobody else. So understanding that, when we come into Galatians, it's very clear that Paul is speaking to a people who have been grafted into Israel. He's, he's speaking to Israel. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. They've been grafted into Israel and they're all one. They're all a piece. So this is a message to Israel, whether a Jew or Gentile. This is a message to the covenant people. And the Gentiles have been grafted in. And now he says, tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. So Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. So this is what we understand that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was free, but Hagar was a slave woman, a bondwoman, And he had a son through Hagar and a son through Sarah. He says, but he, that is Ishmael, who was of the bondwoman, 
was born after the flesh. That was just a carnal, it had nothing to do with God. That was just a carnal activity and this boy was born and it really, it's outside of the covenant, it has nothing to do with God. But he of the free woman was by promise. So one, one child was just born the way any other child is born, just of the flesh. But Isaac was a miracle. Isaac was a miracle. And he came because God promised that he would bring this child through Abraham and Sarah. So this Isaac was by promise. It's miraculous, not just a carnal act. Then he says, which things are an allegory? So he's saying this whole thing now, is, it has a symbolic meaning. So let's unpack the symbolic meaning of the fact that Abraham had two sons through two different women. One was free and one was bound. These things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants. There it is right there. We don't need to... Um, Try to figure out what is the allegory, what is the symbolism. Paul tells us that Hagar and Ishmael represent the Old Covenant. Sarah and Isaac represent the New Covenant. And he's going to unpack this further. These things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which begets bondage, which leads to bondage, which is Hagar. So Hagar is from Mount Sinai, and she represents the Old Covenant, and it leads to bondage. Simply put, they can't keep the covenant, so all the curses are upon them. And they're, one of the key curses is they'll be captive. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And I mean, there was a question earlier about, you know, which, where is Mount Sinai? And we had a great presentation from one of our brethren who came up last year at Pentecost and really through archaeology and just very systematic thinking and research was able to show us that the true Mount Sinai is in Arabia and Paul confirms it here. This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So... What he's saying here, and this is fascinating, Hagar represents the Old Covenant. It's a carnal covenant. But now he goes further, and he says that that Hagar actually corresponds to Jerusalem. So he's not saying that Jerusalem represents the New Covenant. He's actually saying the opposite, that Jerusalem and Hagar are one and the same. So if you really think through this allegory, he's saying that Hagar is carnal, and the child has come through a carnal relationship, and it just leads to, she was a bound woman, and that just leads to bondage. And then he's saying this actually symbolizes Jerusalem, that is under the old covenant, and has been led into bondage. So Hagar, Ishmael, uh, the, the old covenant people, they're all the same package. They're bound. Then he says this, opposite to that, so opposite to Ishmael 
and opposite to Old Covenant Israel is Jerusalem, which is above. So this Jerusalem that's above, that is coming to earth, this Jerusalem is free, completely free, has nothing to do with bondage. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So, so this is our mother. This is where we are born of this mother. So, so this now really is the symbolism of Sarah, that Sarah points to the Jerusalem, which is above. And her children, Jerusalem above, come by promise, not through carnal behavior. But Jerusalem, which above, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written. And now he quotes Isaiah. So he, this this um, allegory that he sees in the two relationships that Abraham had, he sees it fulfilled in Isaiah's prophecy. So he says, "For it is written." So let's go to Isaiah fifty-four. Rejoice. You barren, you barren, that bears not. So this is Sarah. Rejoice, you barren, that bears not. Break forth and cry, that travails not. For the desolate has many more children than she which has a husband. And so there's this turn of events. And now the one that was childless is going to have children more than the sand of the seashore more than the stars in heaven. This is by promise. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So he's saying brethren, this, this is important. We brethren, Israel, Gentile or Jew, Israel, those in the new covenant. So he's, he's making it clear there's an old covenant people and then there's a new covenant people. And the old covenant people are really symbolized by Ishmael and Hagar. That's the old covenant. That's the carnal, and that just leads to bondage. The new covenant has to do with the Holy Spirit, which comes from heaven, that this new Jerusalem is our mother, and we come by promise. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then, he that was born after the flesh, this is fascinating, so the same way it was way back when, when he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. And so when he says now, we had the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the, the Sadducees and all the, the Jews there, who would not accept the suffering servant and put him to death and then persecuted the church or his body afterwards. And so Paul is saying this is the same thing. They're, they're all a piece. This, this, this is what, what happened anciently is happening now. And then even today we could say it's the same thing, that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And that's what's happening in the world today. And as the world is spinning out of control, you can't understand it unless you have the insight like this that Paul had, that as it was anciently, even so it is now. That Ishmael, that those that were born of the flesh, will persecute 
the new covenant people. And that's what Christ prophesied. So uh, the, the carnal one really is going to sweep the nations. And so we'll, we'll really uh, be confederate and lead and consolidate the nations, the Gentile nations, to persecute the children of promise. Nevertheless, so even though, even though that's the way it is now, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? The scripture that cannot be broken. What does God's word say? So that's the way it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. So this is why Isaiah says the desolate woman has far more children now than the married woman. The married woman being Old Covenant Israel. That's over now. That's, God's done with that. Now he's shifted to the New Covenant. And so the Old Covenant cannot reproduce anymore. It's done. And now all the children of the future and that promise to Abraham that his seed would be more than the sand of the seashore. All of that is coming out of the new Jerusalem and the new covenant Israel. So nevertheless, what says the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. And so this is, this is the fate of not only Ishmael, but also Jerusalem under the old covenant. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. That is actually quite frightening. So even if you are genetically a Jew or genetically an Israelite, if you do not accept Jesus Christ, you're cast out. It doesn't, it's done, it's over. You have to accept Christ to be a child of promise in order to be included in the future. So, so you know, going forward, it's all about the New Jerusalem. <clears throat> so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So this is making it very clear. We're done with the Old Covenant. We are now under the New Covenant. And then he concludes here, or we'll just conclude his argument here in Galatians 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So this is not saying, go ahead and break the Sabbath, uh, have a, a pig feast, and uh, eat all the shrimp you want, and go and fornicate and commit adultery and lie and murder and steal, and just have your way, and as long as you're in Christ, once saved, always saved, don't worry about it. It's not saying that at all. And that's what people have twisted this to mean, that the law is done away. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying the old covenant is done away. And it really it's, it's, it's ineffectual now because the new covenant has made it obsolete. So the, the, the old covenant is obsolete because there's now a new covenant. And so stay in the new covenant, which is by promise. We, we are children through the promise. And it's not if, if we're trying to work up our own righteousness, we're going to be destroyed. And so accept Christ as Savior and understand that it's through promise that we obtain salvation. And that now that we have obtained salvation with Christ, we must do those things that please him. And we just only have to read the book of Revelation to see that it's those that keep the commandments of God that will be saved. So fascinating um, what Paul did.
with, uh, uh, with Isaiah. So that's Isaiah 54, uh, verse 1. Now we're coming into verse 2, <clears throat> where he says now, he says to him, uh, or Isaiah writes, enlarge the place of your tent, your dwelling place. Enlarge it. This is, this is he's speaking to the desolate woman. The woman that's just been wiped out, that has seen no mercy. Now all of that has stopped. And the prophecy now says, enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitation. Spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. So now she can just dwell freely. And this is in, in contradistinction to what Jeremiah experienced. He says in Jeremiah 10, my tabernacle is spoiled, 1020, and all my cords are broken. Here, he's saying, lengthen your cords, spare not, spread out. Here, he's saying, my, my tabernacle, my tent is spoiled, and all my cords are broken. My children are gone forth of me. I've lost my children, and they are not. There is none to stretch forth my tent anymore, and to set up my curtains. And yet, God reverses this. And we saw that in Isaiah 49, he says, For your waste and your desolate places and the land of your destruction shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants. So you're going to have so many people coming back to your land that there won't be space. It's too narrow now. For they that swallowed you up shall be far away. So this is again, God promises that they will inherit and they will possess the Gentiles. So they will now have the upper hand. The children which you shall have, after you have lost the other, shall say again in your ears, the place is too straight for me, it's too, too narrow. Give place to me that I may dwell. So again, this is the new woman, the woman now by promise, they've repented, they have received the Holy Spirit, God is pouring out his Spirit upon them, he's bringing them back into the land, and this is the woman that is now having far more children even though she was desolate and there was hardly just a remnant left, now she's going to have far more children than the married woman, which was the old covenant woman. Old covenant Israel. The children which you shall have after you have lost the other shall say again in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. Back to Isaiah 54 in verse 3. He says... <clears throat> For you shall break forth on the right hand and on the left. You're going to be free. And your seed shall inherit the Gentiles. These powerful people, these powerful nations that just moved in, that looked unstoppable. The promise to Abraham was that your seed shall possess the Gentiles. And now God is fulfilling this. Even though he has to fulfill his word. This, this is why what we read last week in Isaiah 53 is so critical. Because God has to be faithful to his word to Moses. And at the same time, he has to be faithful to his word to Abraham. But this sets up a contradiction. Because he's got to punish the people according to the covenant with Moses. But at the same time, the people need to possess all the lands and the Gentiles and, and be uh, innumerable because that was the promise that was uh, unconditional to Abraham. So, so how does he solve this problem? Enter the suffering servant 
who fulfills all the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant, all of the conditions for righteousness, but then all of the conditions to be cursed, so that he lifts the curse off Israel, so that if they will accept him as their savior, they can now have the promises to Abraham. And God never, ever, ever breaks his word. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to go back on his word. So as a result of what we saw in Isaiah 53, God is able to navigate this, this conundrum, this contradiction, that, that he, he, how can he fulfill both things? Because of the suffering servant. And so here we see now the fulfillment of Abraham, the promise to Abraham, your seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. In chapter 43, what we saw, he said, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. And we saw that numerous times throughout Isaiah. And even Christ says the same thing, that the elect will be gathered, the chosen will be gathered from the four corners of the earth and brought back to the land. And here in Isaiah 60, we've read it before, but we'll read it again in this context. And the Gentiles shall come to your light. These Gentiles that hated you, these Gentiles that meant to destroy you, they shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. So these people will be above kings, that kings will come and be subservient to them. Lift up your eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to you. Lift up your, look at this. You would never believe it, but I'm fulfilling my word. And so we've, there's been this reversal of fortune. And the Gentiles are down, and Israel is now up. And the, all they come to you, your sons shall come from far, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. And so this is this, where did all these children come from? I thought I was completely wiped out. But God knows who, who carries the DNA, the genetic code of Israel. And he's got them all monitored all over the earth. And so when this time happens, he knows who to gather. And they're all going to be brought back to the, the promised land. And these people who thought they were completely wiped out because of the, the, the thoroughness of the Gentiles. Look at me, where did all these children come from? Your sons shall come from far and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and flow together and your heart shall fear and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto you or shall be brought to you. So this, this, all this well, it's not just that the people are coming. Yes, the people are coming, but they're bringing all this wealth with them as well for offerings. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come unto you. And back to Isaiah 54. So it's, it's throughout the scriptures. And so we'll be going through and, and just, Isaiah is just going to be going through this in different ways from different angles to make sure that Israel really gets it. And really we, in, in the new covenant, Israel, we have to really get it because we have to communicate this to Israel, both Israel and Judah. We need to say, behold your God. And we need to drive them to repentance and be the voice of reason, be the voice of clarity in a world of confusion that's spiraling out of control, that's becoming more and more violent. Uh, somebody needs to explain what's going on. And so Isaiah explains it over and over so that we can get it, so that we can comfort God's people. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed. And that's one thing that there's such a resentment for God's chosen people, that they are constantly driven to shame. 
But Isaiah says, Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed. Neither will you be confused, for you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth, and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. So all of that loss, you're not going to remember it anymore. That, that's in the past. So, so move away from that. It's time to move forward to a bright, bright future. In chapter 41, he said again, Fear you not, for I am with you. God is with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. <coughs> Excuse me. It's all about God's righteousness. And we could just say, rightness. God does what is right. And God puts things in order, even from the creation. When there was all this chaos, tohu and bohu, and God puts it right. And so there's going to be this tohu and bohu in the creation in the end time. And God is coming to put it right. And, and a big part of putting it right was the covenant people need to be in place. Despite their faithlessness and despite the wickedness of the Gentiles, God is coming to put things right. And we are going to help him. In Isaiah 45, he says, they shall be ashamed. So, so in 54, he says he's going to take the shame away from his people. But here he says they, the, the, the persecutors, the oppressors, they will be ashamed. And in fact, this, the pattern was laid down by Moses in Deuteronomy 30, when he says when God finally acts and, and puts his spirit in you and brings you to true repentance, then he's going to take the curse off you and he's going to put it on your enemies. All those that persecute you, they're going to receive the curses. So we can read in Deuteronomy 28-29, all those curses that are on Israel, they're eventually going to be on the head of the Gentiles. So he says, they shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. And that's really all the Gentiles have is false gods. But Israel, back in 45-17, but Israel shall be saved. So there's going to be this great confusion, violence everywhere, oppression, slavery. It's going to be the devil's paradise, which is going to be man's nightmare. But God says in all of that, the Gentiles will be shamed and Israel shall be saved. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation, an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end forever you will never be confounded so this is back in 45 here we are nine chapters later Isaiah is saying the same thing he's hoping that we get it that we need to be solid in this understanding so that when we preach the good news we preach it from a place a base that is solid we know what we're talking about and we have the ancient prophets that are all reinforcing this every prophet is saying it over and over and regardless of which prophet we go to, or, or, or apostle, or Christ himself, it's one message, it's one narrative, and they're all saying the same thing. We're solid. We know what we're talking about. Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. 
back to Isaiah 54, he says here, <clears throat> Isaiah 54, he says, for your maker is your husband. So this is now, you know, the old covenant woman was married, but that's done. Now the new covenant woman is the same thing. Israel and God are one. Israel and God are one. Israel is the Lord's helper. The Lord is Israel's husband. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And this is what I say over and over again, that we have to tie this to Matthew 24, when Christ says, you shall be hated of all nations, of all the Gentiles, for my name's sake. What is his name? It's the Lord of hosts specifically the Holy One of Israel, and that this name, Israel, will be blasphemed in the end time. But somebody needs to say, no, no, no. God is the Holy One of Israel. You're making a big mistake. He says, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. There goes Allahu Akbar. Oh, well, that's over. To say Allah is greater, Allah is greater, Allah is greater. No, that's going to stop. That's going to come to an end. Those people are going to come to shame. And God will be known throughout the whole earth as the Holy One of Israel. And the whole earth will come to Jerusalem to learn the, the ways of the true God. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord has called you as a woman forsaken. So this is a woman that's forsaken, that has, is worthless. But this, this is when God called you. The Lord has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. So you were without hope. And a wife of youth when you were refused, says your God. For a small moment have I forsaken you. So God has forsaken her. She is devastated. They have completely destroyed her. And God just, all of that was just a small moment. For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. That is exactly what Jeremiah saw. That's why he says, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. So this intense punishment is just for a moment. That God had to forsake her according to the covenant. And that's why um, Jeremiah says, how long are they going to be deaf, dumb, and blind? and the heart that's just cold to God. And he says, until the cities are desolate and without inhabitant. And then finally, I will act to save them. So for a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. And that is made possible by the work of the suffering servant. Here in chapter 62, he, when we get there, we'll see. He says, you shall no more be termed forsaken. That means that she will be termed forsaken. That, that everyone will say, these people, they, they don't, their God does not care for them. How, how, it, it, where's their God? If they had a God, why would this be happening to them? So everyone will agree, these people are forsaken. And God says, stop it. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall your land any more be termed desolate. So no one loves the land. People want to move into this land. They want to claim they have a right to this land, 
but they're happy to make it desolate because they really don't care about it. But God cares about it. Neither shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hepzibah, and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. So God is going to marry the land. He's going to marry Israel. He's going to marry the land. He's going to marry the church. It's all we have to understand. How does this all come together? But it all comes together. He says, In a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. And God keeps saying, it's like God has this eternal perspective. And he's saying, in the eternity, in the perspective of eternity, it was for a brief moment that I, I forsook you and allowed you to go through what you had to go through. But in the grand scheme of things, that period of time is really nothing compared to eternity. He says, In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, he says, with everlasting kindness will I have mercy upon you. So, so there is this period of wrath, but then after it, there's an eternity of kindness. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God is doing a redemptive work. And, and people seem to think that God has forgotten Israel. And God is saying, no, I haven't. He's forgotten Judah. God is saying, no, I haven't. I've turned my back on them just for a moment, but my heart is still with them. And I am their Redeemer. That's who I am. I am the Redeemer of Israel. So people are running around saying, yeah, God's done with Israel. It's all about the Gentiles now. You don't get this from the scripture. God is not done with Israel. He says in chapter 57 here, For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always angry. For the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, for the iniquity of his covetousness was I angry. That's why. And I struck him. I hid me and was angry. So I turned my back on him. I forsook him. I, I hid from him. And I was angry. because of his, his, he, And he went on frowardly or corruptly. He was very um, corrupt in the way of his heart. Back in chapter 8, he says in Isaiah, just to show how God hides, Isaiah says, And I will wait upon the Lord that hides his face from the house of Jacob. That's what God does. So to people, where, where's God? Where's God? Where's your God? Well, he's hiding. <laughs> so the atheist, where's your God? Yeah, he's hiding. He hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. So Isaiah understood he will come back. It's just it's for, a period, it's for a small period of time. Back to chapter 54 and verse 9, he says, For this is... This whole situation with Israel, this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. So there was a time when God was so angry with mankind that he destroyed the whole earth with water. And he promised never to do that again. In Genesis 9, verse 11, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more 
neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. So God was very angry. He sent this flood, wiped out mankind, and then he made this promise that he would never do that again. And here we are thousands of years later. We've never seen anything like this again. So the same way that he will never flood the whole earth again to destroy man is the same way he's saying the situation with Israel is like this. That yes, I had to destroy them, but I'll never do it again. This is God's promise. I will never destroy them again. He says, For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness, my kindness to Israel? So your mountains will depart. This is going to happen. We're going we're gonna to see mountains, Mount Everest and all these different Kilimanjaro. We're going to see them moved in the new configuration of earth. But my kindness shall not depart from Israel. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Lord that has mercy on you. So there's going to be the same way he made this covenant that he would never destroy the earth with floodwaters again. Now he's making a covenant of peace with Israel that will never be lifted. So there's this moment that he's going to forsake Israel. Uh, The Gentiles are going to have the upper hand. They're going to be ruthless. And then he's going to establish them and, and put in place a covenant of peace that will never be reversed, says the Lord that has mercy on you. And this, this mercy, uh, we sing this often in, in, the, in the Psalms and in our hymns. Praise you, the Lord. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And just this phrase, his mercy endures forever. And it just it sort of struck me that the reason David could say this is he saw the mercy on Israel is an eternal mercy. So forever and ever and ever, he's going to be known as the God of Israel. Israel that should have been destroyed, Israel that should have been wiped out, that this covenant of peace, this union between God and Israel, this honor that God will give Israel is forever when Israel should have been destroyed. And so this is why David could say his mercy endures forever. He says here in verse 11, back to Isaiah 54, he says, O you afflicted, sorry, O you afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, so this is the period that she has to go through, behold, I will lay your stones with fair colors, and lay your foundations with sapphires. This is the future of Israel. These people that are going to face desolation and devastation and catastrophe. God is saying, I'm going to personally lay your stones with beautiful colors and your foundations with sapphires. I will make your windows of uh, gates, uh, a special kind of uh, stone or the ruby, and your gates of carbuncles, another precious stone, and all your borders of pleasant stones. This is how the the city of Jerusalem and the cities of Judah are going to be laid with with spectacular wealth. And this really takes us back to prehistory when in Ezekiel 28, speaking to Satan, he says, you had been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. So God, when he bestows his love and he just bestows everything, 
And, and Lucifer had every precious stone as his covering. The sardius, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of your tablets and of your pipes was prepared in you in the day that you were created. So God really in Eden, in, in heaven, uh, set Satan up and just gave him everything. And he was the covering cherub. And we know now that that new Jerusalem is coming down to earth. And it's for Israel. It is for Israel. And God says what he promised in Isaiah, we see now fulfilled in Revelation. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And in verse 18, And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, Ch chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. So twelve gate, twelve stones, twelve gate. This is all for Israel, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. So John took it upon himself to make sure that we understood just how precious Jerusalem is going to be. But because of Isaiah, we understand that Jerusalem is for Israel, that this is coming for Israel. And if you're not part of Israel, this is not for you. So this is, uh, God is very, very faithful to his word, and he means what he says. So he says here, And all your children shall be taught of the Lord. And in fact, uh, I think what I'll do is I'll stop here, because this is now going to get into some new covenant language, and I'll need a bit of time to uh, just develop that and unpack that. So we'll just conclude here. He says, at this time when everything is just laid out and there's no it's a covenant of peace with Israel that at this time all her children shall be taught of the Lord why because they have to be a kingdom of priests that the whole earth comes to them with the Holy Spirit to learn about God and so all your children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. No one's going to persecute them anymore. This this hatred that people have to say, you mean you're the you're 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 the chosen people, and they they resent it, and so they have to destroy these people. They're going to have great peace. People are going to say, yeah yeah yep yeah, you're the chosen people, and so next week, God willing, when I unpack this, it's going to be ever so clear that the role of the church today is what, what we do today in terms of having the Spirit and teaching God's Word. Israel will be doing, Israel and Judah will be doing what we're doing today as physical human beings with the Holy Spirit. That's what they'll be doing in the millennium. And we, the church, will be in God's family overseeing and teaching them. So it says, they shall be taught of the Lord. It doesn't say who will teach them, but in another place it actually does. And we, the church, will teach them 
so that they in turn can teach the world. But let's, uh, let's pause here and we'll continue with chapter 54, God willing, next week. So all your children shall be taught of the Lord. This is amazing, this uh, pain, this painful process that Israel had to go through where God forsook them so that they could be punished according to the covenant. But then this work of this mysterious servant enables God to then redeem them and bless them and have mercy upon them forever. So I'll go to the chat now and God willing, we can have a bit more conversation there. And then God willing, we'll continue this train of thought next week as we conclude Isaiah chapter 54. We serve a mighty God we serve a faithful God. We just have to search the scriptures so that we can understand his will, pray according to his will, and act according to his will. What a great God, what a merciful God we serve. Jesus Christ is indeed Lord and Savior.